Let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. We're looking at the rescue of God's people from slavery in Egypt. We, in the book of Exodus, are reminded that God is good. He is sovereign, even in the worst of times. The book confronts us with the truth that God is the king above all other powers, the Lord of all, the Lord over all peoples, the Lord of our lives. So this morning we're going to look at Exodus 2, beginning at verse 11. If you're using the Bible that's right there in front of you, it's on page 56, near the beginning of the Bible. Exodus is the gospel, the good news, that God comes to save his people from their sins. We last week were introduced to Moses, the baby rescued by Pharaoh's daughter from the waters of the Nile. And now we jump ahead into adulthood to see God beginning to work in Moses' life. Listen as I read Exodus 2, 11 through 25. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the, and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Let's bow in prayer, asking God to teach us his truth. Father in heaven, we thank you for your condescension to us, your willingness to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that you hear us when we cry out to you. And so, Lord, I pray that we, in your word, would find comfort where we need hope, that we would be unsettled where we are comfortable in our sin. Lord, that you would turn us from sin and help us to trust in you. Lord, work in our hearts as we hear your word. Draw to yourself those that listen, that they might have the faith to believe. 
Lord, we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Frida didn't mind the party. 50 or 60 of her new husband's extended family members were gathered for their once-every-five-years reunion. Throughout the afternoon, she just excused herself from conversations that moved into the off-color humor that family reunions can be known for. But the host of the party, a cousin of her husband, he forces his 11-year-old daughter to prance around the side of the swimming pool in her swimsuit, beauty queen style, for the gathered crowd. The child says, no, 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 no. But her dad won't let her out of it. He's drunk. He doesn't care about her red-faced embarrassment. And a few of the host's buddies are egging him on. It seems only a handful of the guests seem to notice how uncomfortable the situation is. Only a few mumble to themselves, well, he should know better than that. What can Frida do? I mean, she doesn't know this child. She doesn't really know anyone here. And she can't find her husband. It's his family after all. He's the one who should do something. How should we respond when we witness injustice? On the personal scale at a family gathering, or even on the societal scale in our communities. It's more than the merely socially awkward situation. It is wrong to treat a child like this. But what should Frida do? Yell at the host in front of everyone to make him stop? Enlist a few family members to, to put an end to the situation? Whatever she does, she knows she'll draw some of the family's scorn. So we can imagine, along with the pastor who shared this story of a church member's family reunion, Frida acting with dramatic flourish. She's not normally one to want to be the center of attention, but she grabs a, a flamboyant hat off of someone's head, puts it down over one of her eyes, picks up a couple of towels as she goes to the child's rescue, and in a flamboyant voice says, oh, no, 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 dear honey, fashion police, fashion police, this just won't do, wraps the child in a towel, scoops her off, and then tosses a towel to an uncle and says, your turn, honey, and walks the child away from the crowd. People chuckle. Those that had been embarrassed for the child are relieved. Now, surely there will be deeper conversations that need to happen, perhaps not with a drunk father, but with the child's parents when he is no longer drunk. But Frida has intervened in the face of this poolside injustice to protect this little girl from further harm. But what about us? How should we respond to injustice when we see it? Because even when we're in positions of power, it feels difficult to know what to do. How would I wield my power to bring about any change? And often we feel powerless in the face of injustice. And so we're tempted to shrink into the background. Moses, a prince in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, sees the injustice against his people. In the cruelty 
and violence of an Egyptian beating an enslaved Hebrew, he decides to act. In the power imbalance at a well in the desert of Midian, he decides to act. Now we see first the violence here in Egypt. Moses, who has now grown, we left him uh, a child being, being nursed by his mother, his own birth mother, to be raised in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, is now grown up. Verse 11 tells us that he goes out to watch his own people. That means the people of his birth, the people of his ancestry. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And Moses knows that this is unjust. I, I, I doubt this is the first day that he has, he has thought that, that this system is wrong, that things shouldn't continue in this way, that it is wrong for Egypt to mistreat and harm and put into brutal labor the people of the Hebrews. And so verse 12 gives us a, a, a little glimpse into what, what Moses is thinking because he, he looks both ways. He checks around to see well, maybe first, is anybody else going to intervene? But here's the thing. There's probably no one on the scene, even if there is a taskmaster, even if there is a, a higher-ranking man among the Egyptians, there is no one with as much power at this scene as a prince in Pharaoh's household. And so glancing this way and that and seeing no one, no one who will witness what he does next, he in violence killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses instinctively, at the sight of injustice, identifies with those who are being harmed because he understands that he is ethnically among those people, the Hebrews. Now, we might not, not be sure where, where in the timeline of Moses' life this falls, and so we could turn to commentaries for an answer. Actually, the Perhaps the most helpful commentary on this passage is in the Bible itself. If you turn with me to the book of Acts, we'll, we'll come back to Exodus 2. But flip into the New Testament in your Bible to Acts chapter 7. Stephen, who is one of the men appointed by the church to serve among the poor and the vulnerable, Stephen is brought forward before the religious leaders to give witness to the message of the early Christian church. And in Acts 7, we have Stephen's sermon, his speech before the religious leaders, which will lead to his death. But in Acts 7, he, he recounts the history of God's faithfulness to his people. And so in Acts 7, verse 23, we, we read a commentary on Exodus 2. But not just any commentary, it's a commentary inspired by God. The Holy Spirit has filled Stephen and then the Holy Spirit has filled Luke, who wrote down this for us. And so in Exodus 7, verse 23, this is what we read. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, when Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? 
But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Now, perhaps the most shocking of the details here is that Moses is not a a teenage boy wandering onto this scene. Moses is a 40-year-old man who has been trained in the household of Pharaoh, raised with the wisdom of Egypt. That's what, what we read in Acts 7, verses 20 and 21, or 21 and 22. When Moses was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He is a man in a position of power. And so when he kills the Egyptians, it, it might actually be that according to Egyptian law, he had the legal authority to do that. I mean, he's a prince of Egypt after all. Whenever he sees injustice, he can intervene. He's likely a, a commander in the army itself who has authority over soldiers underneath him, over the taskmasters and the slave masters of Egypt. And so, through the history of the church, there have been some that, that think, well, it, it, it must be that Moses did the right thing. That in his attempt to avenge the injustice, it was okay to kill the Egyptian. Except that when Moses will lead the people into the promised, it will lead them into the wilderness and God will give them the law, it will become clear that murdering a man in cold blood is sin, is wrong. That's a command already given to the people of God. That is, that is something that is understood. And so while he might have been legally allowed to kill an Egyptian underling, morally he has sinned. Because the motive to respond to injustice, that may have been noble. He wants to free his people. But his actions are wrong. I mean, Stephen explains to us that, that Moses thought that God's people, in seeing him act in, against the injustice, that they would say, oh, there's our leader. Let's follow him. Yet he's trying to raise himself up. I mean, the question that, that he has asked, and we can flip back to, to the book of Exodus, to chapter 2. The question that he has asked when he goes out the next day and sees two Hebrews fighting, who made you ruler and judge over us? That's an important question. For in, the, in the practical sense, this, this wrongdoing Hebrew wants to know, am I going to get what you gave to the Egyptian yesterday? Like, is that how this works? You just go around slaughtering people when they do something wrong? But theologically, it's, it's an important question here at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Who made you ruler? Because Moses is, is a, a child of promise, one in whom God has already made clear he will work. But at this point, it, it, if, if Moses answered honestly, who made you ruler? He'd have to say, well, I guess I did. I guess I decided that it's my responsibility to deal with injustice and to do it my way. But see, God is at work. And so that big question, who made you ruler, will linger over these coming chapters. 
as Moses is forced to flee, as Moses returns in Moses' confrontation with the next Pharaoh, who is really in charge? And so we read in verse 15 that because Moses knows that, that others have heard about what he did, because, well, there's a missing taskmaster, isn't there? Somebody's going to figure it out. It's not a perfect crime. I mean, his whole planning process was to look this way and that. And so he's caught. So he has to flee. Because Pharaoh heard of this, and so Pharaoh is going to kill Moses. Perhaps not for breaking any Egyptian law, but because it's clear where Moses' loyalties lie. Moses is not really an Egyptian at heart. Moses has killed an Egyptian and sided with the enslaved Hebrews. Perhaps this has been a problem coming along through his education. Maybe he's the kid in class who kept raising his hand and saying, hey, but what about the Hebrews? Maybe this is something that Pharaoh has seen coming, and so now when Moses acts in violence in killing an Egyptian, now Pharaoh brings a con condemnation of death against Moses. And so Moses is forced to flee. Now, now notice with me that at this point, we have Moses' complete failure. He saw injustice, and yet he responds sinfully. He saw God's people oppressed and says, well, let me do something about it. I can lead these people. He, he at this point, has thrown off and any consideration that God is at work. I mean, Moses' failures, as, as one modern commentator points out, highlight God's power and intervention. If Moses is going to be useful to God at any point, it's going to take a miracle from God himself. But also think of it. In seeing the injustice, Moses is the only Hebrew who has nothing to gain by responding to the injustice. He's in Pharaoh's household, meaning the bigger Pharaoh's kingdom gets, the more secure these fortified cities along the edge of the empire become, the better it is to be in Pharaoh's household. In the book of Exodus, the only Hebrew who will give up a lot to leave is Moses. Everyone else flees, gaining their freedom and gaining the treasures of Egypt as they leave, but Moses has to leave all of the treasures, all of the power, all of the privilege behind. Well, and that's what God is going to force him to do. And so Moses is forced to flee out of Egypt. It will, we've turned a couple of times already to the book of Hebrews already in this series. So, so go there again with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the, the, the passage that, that repeats that phrase, by faith. By faith, this person acted. And so when we get to the, the story of Moses in Hebrews 11, this is what we read in Hebrews 11:24. This is way toward the back of your Bibles. You're going past where you were in the book of Acts. Hebrews 11:24. By faith, Moses, 
When he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. See, in Exodus 2, it seems that, that Moses is fleeing without any hope. He's a desperado on the run into the desert. But see, after the fact, after God will use him later, we can see how God was at work in his life. That it was by faith that Moses refused the privilege of, of Pharaoh's household and identified himself with those, with his people who were being mistreated. He gave up the pleasures of sin because he put his faith in the God of promise. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Moses is willing, and in some sense forced, to give up everything to identify with the Hebrew people. And yet the book of Hebrews is not really about the faith of God's people. It's about the faithfulness of God. Because it's not hard to hear in this, this story from Exodus 2, recounted for us in Hebrews 11, of how a prince is willing to give up all of the treasures of the kingdom in order to identify with the people who are trapped by sin. I mean, that's the story of God's own son, Jesus, who is the Christ. The king who gave up the treasures of heaven to come and be identified with his people. I mean, if we, you'd only have to turn back just one chapter. You could really almost, in any, any chapter in the book of Hebrews, just flip it open to find this truth that Jesus is the one greater than the men and women of faith in chapter 11. But if you just go back one chapter to Hebrews chapter 10, we read in verse 19 this, this command given to us to put our trust in God, our faith in God, because of what Jesus has done for us. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You see, the reason that, that chapter 11 can point us to the faith of God's people is because the one who made the promise is faithful. And even the structure of the passage, by faith, well, what kind of faith? This sort of vague hope in the goodness of humanity? No. 
By faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who identified with his people, became man, died in their place, was raised from the dead, and ascended into the, into the throne room of heaven. By faith in that Jesus, holding on to the promises of God, then, then the people of God could see God at work even in the horror of their circumstances. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he understood the promises that God has made. And you and I see the story of Jesus, the Savior, who left behind the riches of heaven for us. And so we've seen the, the violence in Egypt. And we'll move a little more quickly through the rest of, of Exodus 2. Moses is forced to flee to Midian, an area surrounding the Red Sea, including the Sinai, where the people of God will will be forced to wander after they're led out of slavery. Moses, again, is confronted with another scene of injustice. Moses sees the, the daughters, these shepherdesses, bringing their father's flock. But shepherds come along and, and drive the women away. And so Moses, look at, look at verse 17 back in Exodus 2. Verse 17, Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Do you see, he had the same instinct that he had in Egypt. This is wrong. Someone with greater power should not use that power against someone with less power. An Egyptian slave master is wrong to harm someone who is enslaved. These shepherds are wrong to use either their greater physical power or their greater numbers to push the shepherdesses away from the well. And so, Moses, using the training he's gained in Egypt, is able to push them back, either because he's a man of, of great confidence, great, great, uh, a great, he's able to convince them by his words, or, or he just physically intimidates them. But he now responds again to injustice by bringing about here what is right. So much so that, that when the, the daughters return to their father, he's surprised by checking his watch and says, you're, you're home early today. And this is normally a much lengthier process when you get interrupted by all the, the, the cruel shepherds. Well, there was an Egyptian. Moses, clearly Egyptian from his dress, haircut, clothing styles, fashion magazines that he's carried with him. They, they know he's an Egyptian. And so, so the, the father says, well, we'll bring him here. Here's a man who deserves our hospitality. He protected you. And, and you found him just sitting at the well? Bring him here. And we see in the, the provision here in the wilderness, a provision of family and protection. The, the scene kind of moves quickly, the cut scenes here, to, to catch us up with, with where we will be in time for, for Exodus 3 to get us eventually back to Egypt. But we have a a wife, and then a son. A son whose name reminds us that, that Moses is an alien in a foreign land. Well, he knew that he was an alien even when he was in Egypt, a Hebrew in Pharaoh's household. Even now, free from, from Egypt, he's, he's still an alien because he's not in the land promised to Abraham. See, Moses' concern for, for injustice led him to violence in Egypt. His concern for, for injustice requires radical intervention here in Midian. 
See, God used Moses' sense for justice. God is, is able to, to see Moses' heart for justice. I mean, what injustice do you see around you? What power do you have to intervene? And we just think about it in your own family, the squabbles and frustrations that take place. Think about it in your workplace or among your classmates. Where do you see injustice? Certainly we could think of larger societal concerns, your heart for the poor, the imprisoned, the oppressed, the alien. Because your moral repulsion at injustice is a good thing. That when you see that, that, wait, this is not right, this is not okay, and you want to respond, that's a good thing. Don't try and, don't try and numb yourself to the injustice of the world. See, but when you see injustice, will it lead you to have more confidence in the power of God or will it harden your heart against the possibility of ever seeing things put right? Let me encourage you from the book of Exodus, persevere. Moses is 40. In the next chapter, he'll be 80. I don't know where you are in that timeline. I don't know if you're at the beginning of those 40 years or near the end where you will see God at work. And for Moses, it will absolutely require supernatural intervention for God to use this washed-up murderer on the run to do something big for his kingdom. See, but when, when our hearts cry out against injustice, we're actually admitting there, there is a, a universe, the universe in which we live has right and wrong. When we, when we want to see things made right, it's because we see the long arc of, of history is pointed toward the justice that God will one day bring about. And that's where the chapter ends. A reminder that God hears the cries of his people. Verse 23, we read, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. Oh yeah. As time marches on, kings will be pushed aside, but God remains on the scene. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. This isn't the most articulate prayer in Scripture. It's just groaning. And I suspect you've been there, where you don't even know, know what words to pray. And yet groaning can be an effective prayer if it, if it points your heart back toward God and his goodness and his purposes. Or groaning can become grumbling and complaining, which turns us away from God. But cry out to God for help. Because look at the response of God in verses 24 and 25. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. Verse 25, so God looked on the Israelites and God was concerned about them. It's, it's explicit in the original Hebrew, God's name repeated four times, so that we're reminded, oh, God will act. God will intervene. God hears the, the cries of his people. God remembered his covenant, not as if he'd forgotten it, but, but says, oh, let me pull that out. Now is the time that I will act on these promises I made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. 
God is committed to bringing his promises to fulfillment. See, God hears your prayers. God is not blind to the injustice around us. God has not abandoned his people. God remembers his promises. God will act. Justice is coming. And not only for Israel in the book of Exodus. Justice is coming for us. In the return of Christ the King, in the fullness of his kingdom, Jesus is coming. Justice is coming. Because we have a true and righteous ruler. Jesus, who gave himself for us. Jesus, who rescues us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, for your miraculous intervention in the life of your people, that you hear their groans, and that you are the God who will not, who cannot abandon your promises. And so, Lord, even as we face injustice, injustice that we see around us, injustice that we feel in our very souls, Lord, help us to cling to your promises. Lord, give us opportunity and power and, and strength to intervene, to care for those who have been oppressed, for those who have been imprisoned, for those who are without help. Lord, use us as your church to be a picture of your coming kingdom, of your gracious intervention, of your love for us. Father, we give you praise through Jesus, our King. Amen.